It's a privilege, as always, to get to bring God's word to you this morning. And uh, we are going to be reading in just a moment from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. You can follow along in the bulletin or start turning there in your own copy of God's word. What passage we are about to read is a parable. It's a story from Jesus uh, that shows us something about God's kingdom. That shows us something about who God is, uh, who we are, and how we can come to be in a relationship with him. So let's turn now and consider God's word together. This is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Would you please pray with me? Father, I thank you that we can show up on a morning like this, unworthy servants as we are, and yet also as your royal children, to hear a word from you about your son, Jesus, and the incredible grace that is offered to us in him. I pray that as we prepare to consider this parable from Jesus that he taught for the first time 2,000 years ago, that it would strike our ears this morning afresh, that we would be among those that have ears to hear, hearts that are prepared to believe, minds that are equipped to understand, hands and feet that are quick to obey. And I ask God that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I wonder if anyone in the room this morning has ever heard of Dickie Simpkins. Dickie, oh, we got one in the back, all right. Dickie Simpkins is a former NBA player whom most of us have never heard of, and for good reason. Uh, and yet, Dickie Simpkins is a three-time NBA champion. He played for the Chicago Bulls for a number of years, and from the seasons of 1996 to 1998, uh, he was on the Chicago Bulls team that won three NBA championships. And yet, for the seasons of 1996 and 1997, 
Dickie Simpkins recorded zero points, zero steals, zero assists, zero rebounds, and zero blocks because uh, he had zero minutes of playing time. And yet, his rings are of the same cut, of the same size, the same extravagance and beauty as that of Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen. Here's the thing we're going to see this morning from God's word. You and I are a lot like Dickie Simpkins. We benefit from the work of another. Although we didn't bring anything to the table, although Dickie Simpkins contributed nothing at all to those championship teams, he still got the ring at the end of the day. And before we're done, we'll see that something similar and even more beautiful is true for you and me. The idea that we're going to be considering this morning is what the Bible calls justification. But before we jump to that, which is really the focus of our passage, I think it might be helpful since we're just kind of jumping into uh, a parable on the tail end of Jesus' teaching ministry for us to take a 30,000-foot view for a moment. Uh, Why does Jesus teach and communicate about himself, about the kingdom of God, through parables, through these stories? Uh, So we're going to think first for just a few minutes about the king's strategy for showing us something about who God is and who we are and what it's like to live in God's kingdom. And then we'll think about the king's status, uh, this grace of justification that's offered to people like you and me. So why did Jesus use parables? Well, one biblical scholar, a man named Craig Blomberg, has spent a lot of time studying the parables. And he mentions three reasons that I want to share with you as to why Jesus chose very often to communicate about God's kingdom through these parables, these stories. The first reason is to illustrate a point The second reason is actually to veil information. And then the third is to bring us to a point of decision. So to illustrate a point, to veil information, and to bring us to a point of decision. I think most of us can resonate with this first reason why Jesus would speak through parables, to illustrate a point. Uh, When I was a child growing up, my mother told me the story of the boy who cried wolf. And uh, she wasn't telling me that story just to entertain me. Uh, The truth of the matter is, and you can talk to Amanda about this afterwards, it's still kind of true of me, that I can be a bit dramatic. So my mom was telling me this story of the boy who cried wolf to illustrate a point. Uh, Just like the boy who cried wolf said, wolf, 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 when there was no wolf at all. But then when he actually needed help, no one was there to to come. I needed to learn a lesson about uh, maybe being a little less dramatic or not as much of a tattletale. We, We resonate with the way that Jesus uses stories to illustrate a point because we do the same thing. But what we need to see is that Jesus, as the great teacher, the master storyteller, He's not telling us these stories to turn generally good people into better people or to teach us some moral lesson. All of Jesus' parables, including the one 
we'll focus on this morning are showing us something about God's kingdom, showing us something about who he is as not just a a good Jewish teacher, but as the king of kings. But the second use that Jesus has for the parables might be a little more difficult for us to understand. Blomberg argues, and I think he's right, that one reason Jesus so often spoke about God's kingdom through stories, through parables, was actually to veil information. Now, that might sound a little strange to us. It might even sound like it's contradicting the first use. But here's what we need to understand. Way back towards the beginning of his teaching ministry, Jesus told a parable called the parable of the sower, or sometimes called the parable of the seed or the parable of the soils. And in this parable, Jesus says that one reason he's speaking in parables is so that those who have ears to hear might hear and understand so that people like his disciples could be confronted with the good news about God's kingdom and so that those who do not have ears to hear, just as the prophet Isaiah predicted, uh, that they would not understand. It's almost as if Jesus uses parables in part as a kind of sifting tool to demonstrate the difference between those who have been granted by grace, spiritual discernment, eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and those who haven't. He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy that said, when the Messiah comes, many will reject him. Many who hear his teaching and see his miracles will not recognize him for who he is. And related to this idea is that Jesus knew his mission. He knew that he didn't come just to teach us uh, or just to show us what God is like. Jesus knew, and this is one reason why he used parables, that he came to live the life that we could not live and then to die the death that we deserve to die on a Roman cross. So we see earlier in Jesus's ministry, he spoke more often in parables in a sense out of a recognition of the Father's plan and timeline, that the time had not yet come for him to go to the cross. And then later in his ministry, he spoke more plainly, and he went voluntarily to die in our place. Well, that brings us to the third use as to why Jesus is employing this strategy. And it's really this third use that the first two are serving. And that is that Jesus uses parables to bring us to a point of decision, to confront us not with some interesting political debate or even a religious one, but with a fundamental question that at one point in his ministry, Jesus explicitly poses to his disciples. There were many who were confused about who Jesus was and were even turning away from following him. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, who do you say that I am. Who do you say that I am? We're studying a parable together this morning. We're going to get into the details in a moment. But I hope those of you that identify as Christians, which I know is many of you, uh, that you'll be studying the parables for the rest of your life. And this is why we're spending time unpacking Craig Blomberg's three uses. 
Because my hope is that each of us would leave this morning more equipped and competent to read God's word and apply it to our lives. And one thing I want you to see whenever you're studying the parables is that Jesus is telling us these stories to slowly at times, but surely bring us to a point of decision. That we're not just asked at the beginning of our walk with God, but day after day, who do you say that I am? And a follow-up question, will you follow me? Will you take up your cross and follow me with every step of your life? Well, if we want to know who Jesus is and what he came to do, then it's really important that we understand what Jesus is showing us in this particular parable this morning. Like he often does in his parables, Jesus is presenting us with two characters that are very different from one another. Uh, They contrast with one another. Another one of Jesus's parables is commonly called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and the same sort of thing is going on. So what do we see here? We see the first character, a Pharisee who was standing alone. And the second character, a tax collector who is standing far off. We see a Pharisee who is boasting in his own performance and a tax collector who is boasting in God's mercy. At the end of the day, the tax collector went home justified and the Pharisee did not. Now, here's something we need to understand about Jesus's use of the parables. There were other Jewish teachers, other rabbis that used parables to teach their disciples, but very often uh, they would use parables to actually confirm and uh, to support conventional wisdom of the day, uh, the, the status quo in the religious establishment. And yet Jesus is coming as the king of kings, ushering in the kingdom of God, and very often the kingdom of God is very different than the kingdoms of this world. That's helpful background for understanding just how shocking this story would have been to the original listeners. In our day and age, if someone calls you a Pharisee, uh, maybe even after the worship service this morning, you are probably going to feel insulted. You probably will not be pleased. Pharisee has become a sort of four-letter word. It's basically another way of someone saying, Uh, You are a self-righteous bigot. In Jesus' day and age, Pharisees were heroes. They were religious leaders. They were looked up to by so many in the community. In in many respects, they would be akin to a celebrity pastor uh, that you or I really respect and revere and benefit from. On the other hand, tax collectors were social outcasts. Now, even in our day and age, most of us don't love the IRS, I'm guessing. But in in Jesus's day, tax collectors were thieves and traitors. They were often Jewish men who were appointed by the Roman government to receive taxes on behalf of the Roman government, 
but they were given authority to require even more than what the Roman government was asking to line their pockets, to take some scam off the top. So how were they viewed by the general Jewish community? They were thieves and they were traitors. Contrast that with the view of the Pharisee, the celebrity pastor, the respected leader among God's people. So when Jesus begins this parable, contrasting this Pharisee and the tax collector, everyone, everyone in Jesus's day would have assumed that the Pharisee was the righteous man, that his prayer would be accepted and honored by God. And the the tax collector, uh, he is the unrighteous one. He is the one whose prayer would be rejected. But the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. The Pharisee thought he could stand before a holy God on account of his own performance. And if we're honest, if we're comparing ourselves to him, maybe he had a shot. If we take what the Pharisee says about himself at face value, what do we see? He fasts twice a week. That's way more often than the Old Testament requires. We see that he gives a tithe, not just of all of his income, but of all that he gets. He actually tithes on what other people have tithed on. So he's not only someone who's religiously devoted, he's generous. He's a pretty good guy. But what do we read in Isaiah 64, verse 6? Even our most righteous deeds are polluted garments before God's holy throne. The Pharisee boasted in his own performance, but the tax collector boasted and hoped in the mercy of God. The Pharisee thought that God owed him a debt. The tax collector knew He owed God a debt that he could never afford. But here's something else we need to understand. The tax collector did not go home that day right with God because he was sorry enough about his sin. He didn't go home right with God because he had a humble heart and the Pharisee didn't. If that were true, then the tax collector would actually bring something to the table. He would contribute something of his own. God would be in his debt in some way. The word mercy in our passage, God be merciful to me, a sinner, is really, really important. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it is explicitly connected to the cross of Jesus Christ. So I want to look at another passage from Romans chapter 3 for just a moment together. We're going to read verses 23 through 25 because this helps us to understand what it is that this tax collector in our parable is asking God for. This is Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. As a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as, listen to this, a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I emphasize that word propitiation in Romans 3 for a reason. Because the the root word that is translated propitiation in Romans 3 is the exact same root word as God be merciful to me in the parable that we're considering. They're, They're related to one another. So what the Pharisee, or rather the tax collector, is requesting of God is not that he give him a pass, but that God would show himself to be the kind of God who rooted in his character but established through his works in history is propitious towards sinners, is able to pardon sinners. What does that word propitiation mean? In the New Testament, it means that God poured out his wrath, his righteous anger on Jesus Christ as he hung on a cross in the place of everyone who would ever trust in him. That Jesus soaked up the righteous anger of God like a sponge so that, this is the good news of propitiation, so that none of it would be left over for you and me. So that God would actually be unjust to punish us for the sin that he had already recorded to Jesus's account. What does this mean when we understand what's going on here, what the tax collector is asking? He's asking God to pardon him. This shows us that his hope is not in his own sorrow for his sin. His hope is not in his own humble character. His hope is not in his own faith. That's not the ground of his right standing with God because it's not our faith that saves us. It's not our faith, ultimately, that we hope in. What saves us is not the strength of our faith, but the strength of our Savior. Faith is just open hands, empty hands, a recognition that we contribute nothing before our standing with God so that those hands can be filled with all of the heavenly blessings that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Here's a theory I want to put before you this morning. My hunch is that many of you in this room believe everything that I just said. Uh, You might even uh, be able to answer the question, uh, what is justification? That's, That's a really important question to be able to answer. But at the same time, I think many of you, like me, struggle to feel like this is true or to live like this is true. So I want us to practice a thought experiment together for a moment. I'm gonna say a sentence with a fill in the blank at the end, and I want you to be honest in your hearts. Uh, Sometimes, maybe even right now, what would you put in that blank? This is the sentence. I know that I am right with God because of Jesus and Fill in the blank. I know I'm right with God because of Jesus. And fill in the blank. How would you fill in that blank? I know I'm right with God because of Jesus and 
I have a pretty stellar quiet time routine. I know I'm right with God because of Jesus and uh, my theological sophistication. I understand so much more about God's word than so many of those other Christians. I know I'm right with God because of Jesus and I vote the right way. I know I'm right with God because of Jesus and I honor the Sabbath. I know I'm right with God because of Jesus and how busy I am, uh, which you can tell because I'm frequently telling other people about how busy I am. Here's the kicker. I know I'm right with God because of Jesus and I am not self-righteous. We can listen to this parable from Jesus. Here's the genius of his teaching and want in our hearts to pray a prayer like this. God, I thank you that I am not like the Pharisee, which is exactly the kind of prayer a Pharisee would pray. Whatever we put in that blank, the reality is that the good news of the gospel, the good news of justification is that Jesus's obedient life in your place and his sacrificial death in your place alone secures your right standing with God. And one good implication of that fact that we see in our passage is that justification does not happen in stages. You're not like kind of justified by Jesus and then you gotta figure something out on your own. He doesn't do 98% of the work and leave 2% for you. What does our passage say? The tax collector went home that day justified right with God. How should we respond to this good news? Well, to begin to lead us toward answering that question, I want to share with you a quote from the British thinker G.K. Chesterton, who once said this, there is a great lesson in the beauty and the beast that a thing must be loved before it is loved. A thing must be loved before it is lovely. What's he saying? Just like in the Beauty and the Beast, the beast experiences the love, uh, the kindness, the affection of Belle, and he's changed because of it. It makes him more human. It makes him more like the prince that he once was. Let's put it another way. This means that God doesn't love us because we are lovely. Which is really good news for those of us that don't feel particularly lovely this morning. God doesn't love us because we are lovely. We are lovely because he loves us. God in justification meets us right where we are. But how do we respond? The the good news is that even though God meets us where we are, he doesn't leave us where we are. That in God's perfect timing, through the work of his spirit, he begins to make true about you the thing that he has already said is true about you. The thing he has already declared is true about you. So how should we respond to this? Well, our passage gives us some hints. I think one great takeaway is that we should beat our chests. 
And I'm not saying you actually need to beat your chest when you are confessing your sin here together with God's people on Sunday mornings or in your own private prayer life. That could be a good thing to do if it reminds you of what I'm about to say. What was this tax collector saying when he beat his chest? Well, the chest, right, is where your heart is. And the heart in the Bible is not just the thing that your feelings flow from. It's the center of who you are, the core of who you are. Your intellect, your will, your affections, everything flows out of your heart. So what is this tax collector saying when he beats his chest? He's saying, fundamentally, I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. That I need, I need God's grace to meet me, not just on the superficial level of behavior modification. I need him to meet me and change me from the inside out. This tax collector knew something about God's mercy that ultimately is displayed on the cross of Jesus and it made him beat his chest. Just as Paul would write elsewhere in the New Testament, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So seeing this truth about justification should humble us. It should bring us low. It should remind us that we are unworthy servants at best. And the good news there is that God, right, exalts those who humble themselves. But it should also give us confidence. If you struggle, and I mean really struggle, with looking at things online that you shouldn't look at, but your trust is in the pardoning mercy of God and Jesus. When God looks at you, he accepts you, and he declares that you are righteous. If you struggle to enjoy spending time with God and his word as much as you enjoy the comforts of food or alcohol or Netflix, but your trust is in the pardoning mercy of God and Jesus, God looks at you, and he accepts you, and he declares you righteous. If you struggle, I mean really struggle in your heart with, with one of the rightfully hated sins in our culture, something like racial prejudice, but you trust in the mercy of God and Jesus, God looks at you, and he declares you righteous. God's love meets us right where we are. Justification shows us that, but it doesn't leave us where we are. In the next chapter of Luke's gospel, Luke 19, we read about an encounter Jesus has with another tax collector, a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, the Christian children's song tells us, but he was also a tax collector. He was one of those men who stole from his compatriots, who lined his pockets, who was a thief and a traitor. He was a hated man. But what did Jesus do? He sought after Zacchaeus. He dined with Zacchaeus in his home. He met Zacchaeus, the great sinner, right where he was. But he didn't leave him there. After Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus he would go on to make restitution. He actually gave back beyond what he had stolen from in, in the, the people in his community. He gave them even more than what he had taken 
Because Jesus met him right where he was, but he didn't leave him there. So what does that mean? Whatever it is, whatever besetting sin, whatever struggle is is discouraging you right now, that very thing does not take away from your right standing before God if you trust in Jesus. The devil would accuse you, we read in Zechariah 3, but the Lord rebukes the devil. Jesus is your lawyer and you can't get a better one. But seeing this grace enables us to hate our lust because it put our savior on a tree. It enables us to hate prejudice, whether it's racial or spiritual. Uh, Some of us struggle with looking down on other Christians for not having it together like we do. What do we see in justification? We see the playing field is completely level, that we are all miserable sinners before a holy God, and yet we can be justified through faith in Jesus, the one who performed in our place. When it comes to your relationship with God, you're not Michael Jordan. You're not Scottie Pippen. You're Dickie Simpkins. You don't bring anything to the table. But that means you can't lose what God has given you by grace. That means your belonging is secured. That means you can actually grow into what God has already declared to be true about you, all of you who've trusted in Jesus. If you don't know that this is true of you this morning, all you have to do is show up with empty hands, is show up asking God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pardon me for the sake of Jesus Christ. And if you know that this is true of you already, I want to encourage you. God meets you where you are, but he doesn't leave you there. And one day he will raise you up with Jesus Christ, who even now is seated in the heavenly places. Let's read one last time the final words of our passage. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Would you please pray with me? King Jesus, we praise you as the only one who was worthy, the only one who deserved the reward of eternal life. And yet we praise you in the same breath as the one who instead was treated with the judgment, the wrath that we deserved. We thank you that you offer to us that reward, eternal life, that can begin even now for those of us that trust in you, even as you took from us separation from God on your cross. God, some of us are here this morning, and this feels a little bit like old hat, I pray that this good news would strike us afresh, that you would meet us where we are, each and every one of us, but that you wouldn't leave us there. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen.